Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by John Ruddock. John is the General Manager of ADIPS, short for the Amusement Device Inspection Procedures Scheme, headquartered in Sunderland. John, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Hello, Scott. Yeah, thanks Thanks for inviting me on your programme. It's a real pleasure having you, John. And um, the purpose of uh, this discussion really is to understand your take on leadership as a whole. So if we just look at that word leader in isolation just for a moment to begin with, what does that word actually mean to you and how does it resonate? Yes, certainly. Um, so I've actually studied leadership quite a bit and um, been an ex-forces man myself. Um, so leadership for me is, is very much something that's inspirational. Um, somebody who takes you um, beyond the status quo, can break down boundaries, um, can really take you forward. If you think about you know, inspirational leadership, people like, um, I don't know, Winston Churchill spring to mind, uh, Martin Luther King, pe- people like this that, that really kind of resonate and break boundaries and get people to go beyond what they think is possible themselves. Mm, I think that idea of inspiring people and making them really push the boundaries, go out of their comfort zones is hugely important. Giving people that independence and that inspiration to do that. You're exactly right, John. Um, speaking of the fact that you, of course, did have a 25-year um, career with um, the Royal Air Force and the Ministry of Defence, I think I'm right in saying, um, are That's there any right, yeah. elements of leadership that you took from that career that you would you would say you've, you've been easily able to transition over to the business world, if you like? Oof. That's a, that's a question. Um, it's 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 been more difficult if if I if I'm frank, uh, moving to the business world. You know, being, being in the military, people tend to do what you tell them to do. Uh, mm. You know, it's um, that that kind of leadership follow followership relationship is very apparent apparent in the military. Um, it, it, everyone knows their place and, and knows when to do certain things. Moving that across to the business world, of course, people have their own ideas. People are, don't conform as much to the way you expect them to think because they're not as institutionalized as, as what you may find in the military. Um, so it's been more difficult for me personally um, to get to grips with that, um, having you know 25 years of, of, of military experience and, and, and fallen in line with, with that kind of status quo. Um, so, so it's been more difficult, but, but I would... Some, some of the one of the similarities that I would draw um, is the fact that people generally turn up to do the right thing. You know, we we might have different ideas on how to get there, but that underlying certainly working in the fairgrounds industry as, as, as I do at the moment, safety being the paramount thing within the fairground industry, and that's what Addicts promotes at all time. That's the whole purpose of behind Addicts. That underlying. Um, Need for safety within the industry is is the one core thing that we can we can all draw upon. Mm. And I can certainly see where you're coming from uh, from that point of view, John. And um, it's been a challenging time, uh, I think it's fair to say, for the um, fairground industry as a whole, hasn't it, with theme parks shutting down as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, no less. Um, for yourselves, how has it been adapting to sort of meet the challenges of this period? Because I can imagine it's posed some challenges for yourselves as well. Yeah, it's um, the, the business has, has 
has had um, a massive hit this year. So if, if I could run through a few figures. So we, we have about 7,500 amusement devices on, on the books that, that annually are inspected, be those traveling fair rides, be those uh, fixed uh, amusement devices at parks, um, inflatables that you might see on the beach, that, that kind of thing. Uh, and by the end of May, we would normally have done about 4,500 inspections. And we've not even done 2,000 this year. Um, so it's taken a massive hit, uh, and that's our our greatest stream of in- income as well, our greatest revenue stream. So, so the business has taken uh, a massive hit. It's a not-for-profit organisation, so so it very much lives um, hand to mouth. There's not a lot of uh, resource to to draw upon. Um, so we've kind of gone into hibernation. Um, the demand for inspection has really dropped off the edge of the cliff. Um, it's just not there at the moment. And, and, and rightly so, why would you get your, uh, your device inspected at the moment if you know the public aren't going to use it? Um, you know, the, the controllers need to keep the money for keeping their own businesses going, their, their own families going, and everything else. Um, so we've got staff on furlough. I'm the only person that, that's actually at work at the moment, keeping the lights on. Uh, and we're just trying to grit our teeth and, and get through to the other end. And how have those staff furloughed um, actually adapted to this period themselves? Because the reason I asked that question, John, is just because we've heard so many great stories of how people, whether they've been furloughed, whether they've had to continue to remotely work, whether they've continued going in on site, they've really gone above and beyond during this period, just keeping communication channels open, maybe getting involved in community work. And that's been incredibly inspiring. And would you say that that's been the same for what you've seen from those around you as well, that it's been quite encouraging? Um, yes, yeah, I would say so. We've we've got our um, our youngest member of our team um, is doing an MVQ in business management, um, so he's been able to keep in touch with his um, uh, his uh, training provider, and he's been working through that as he's been going. Um, our other member of staff, uh, uh, Rachel, who's on furlough at the moment, um, yeah, she she's been um, trying to help out with the local community and, and things like that, and myself as well. I've, I've been part of the. Um, the, the local workforce that's been delivering um, food to the to the people that have been isolated at the moment. There's one guy that I see uh, every week at the moment. Every Thursday he rings me. Every Friday morning I drop his uh, drop his shopping off. Um, and you know we, you've just got to do what you can at the moment. I think. And how have you found it sort of keeping the communication channels open and demonstrating that sort of leadership from a distance um, with being that everybody's uh, been furloughed recently? Because I can imagine it's been a little bit of a pressurising situation because people will be ultimately looking to you for some much needed reassurance at times as well. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's been tough. I mean, Adips itself is a, is a small organisation. You know, we, we've only three staff, but we have a national footprint. Um, we have close to 200 inspectors registered um, with the scheme, um, you know, there's maybe three or four thousand controllers. So controllers are people that own amusement devices um, running around the country that use the scheme as well. Um, so, so it's you know, it's 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 a communication challenge at the best of times, let alone um, the, the current situation that we find ourselves. Um, so we very much use the trade association. Um, so people like the Showman's Guild of Great Britain that are a member of the Amusement Device Safety Council. Alpa, um, which runs um, all the all the big parks and the piers, um, and that's their association. So we we use the existing communication units, uh, uh, communication um, access that's that's already available through um, the larger uh, association, and that pretty much hits all the members um, that own amusement devices throughout the country. 
I actually had a conversation with uh, the president of the Showman's Guild, uh, Philip Paris, uh, some weeks ago, and yeah. um, he had, um, of course, uh, some concerns about sort of what the future is going to look like amid all of the um, uncertainty. Because um, for the benefit of those listening uh, to this, we are recording this on June the 11th, 2020. So there's been news come out in the last few days that there will be zoos, safari parks and outdoor cinemas reopening from Monday next week. So the um, 15th of June. However, as far as I've seen, John, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's been no clear route forward for when maybe theme parks can be expected to reopen and fairgrounds. Um, amid all of the uncertainty and the debate about how clear the government guidelines have been, um, is there a clear route forward for your industry, do you think? Or is that still very much up in the air? Um, there's rumours uh, rumors out there that, that um, sort of start to mid, mid-July, um, maybe the time that mass gatherings for theme parks and the like uh, will get going. But there's a big difference, I think, and it's probably worth taking this, that, that theme parks that have fixed and static attractions in them that have control of entry already in place, um, uh, you know, how, how you get into the place and mm. go for a turnstile or whatever it may be, um, I would, I would argue is, is, is easier to um, fall in line with the guidelines that are currently out there. If you talk about a travelling fair that turns up on the village green or you know on the town um, park or, or something like that, numerous different um, points of ingress and egress um, throughout there, one-way systems, things like that, really difficult to put in place. So, so I think there's a an easier route for a fixed park to um, conform with the guidelines than what is a travelling fair. Um, and the travelling fair side um, of the the, um, the industry is probably going to be the hardest hit um, out of the whole industry. And if we think about what the future holds for yourself, for Adips and for the industry as a whole, John, for a second, before we do wrap things up on the programme, um, what do you yeah. envision the next 12 to 18 months holding and what do you hope to achieve as we hopefully move through the pandemic and begin to look to the long-term future under the new normal? Yeah, so, so we, we, we really like to make it easier for controllers um, to use the scheme. Um, so, so the scheme is there for, for controllers to be able to comply with the law, which says that an item of work equipment must be inspected on a yearly basis. So, so that's what we do. We, we uh, ensure that the inspectors are competent um, or prove their competence to carry out those inspections. So what I'd like to do over the next 12 months is just make it easier um, for controls to, to comply with that law. Um, so, so at the moment, we, we, we can see a cliff edge coming up where the demand for inspection is going to massively increase because of all the inspections that have been, been cancelled. Um, we don't know if the scheme can cope with that demand. So we'll be looking at over the next 12 months trying to move some of those annual dates um, within the regulations to hopefully ease um the cliff edge um, when it does come. Um, and also, we, we'll be working very closely with, with the associations um, to help with any kind of um, guidance, publicity that might be needed, help with local authorities. We have lots of links with local authorities and with the HSE as well to try and really spread any information that is required to help them open. 
And also, I understand that uh, prior to the uh, the pandemic, um, you mentioned in the parliamentary review, actually, um, indispensable guide to best practice, of course, that you were in talks with a training provider to run what you thought would be the world's first training course for inspecting fairground equipment. Is that still something that's also going to be on the agenda as well, or is that something that's been put on hold for the minute? Uh, it, it, unfortunately, it's been on been on hold for the moment. Um, it takes money to do that uh, and mm. as our um, prime source of income um, the, the money that we get for inspection has it, just disappeared then we've had to delay that by six months I, I would hope to um, for the beginning of next year maybe spring next year um, be looking at launching that again um, mm. the training provider is still there all that's still in place um, it's just actually having the funds to be able to um, drive that forward uh, because it, it, you know priority wise um the money just needs to be spent elsewhere at the moment. Yeah, and let's hope that the money does start flowing in again and uh, that things can pick up sooner rather than later for sure there, uh, John. Um, I have to say, given how informative it's been discussing these issues on the air with you today, I actually think it would be fantastic at some point in the coming months to have you back on the air just to see if anything has changed in the time between and see what sort of trajectory we are on at that point and just catch up as to what's going on within the business. I think that would be really, really fantastic. Yeah, I'll be absolutely open to that. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to, um, you know, paint a, a happier picture in, in a few months' time. Here's, we're, we're all hoping with the industry that the weather persists and that we have a long summer mm. uh, going into the autumn, and that the uh, Christmas markets are, um, are slightly better than what they have been as well. To try and get, particularly those the travelling side of the industry, um, some money towards uh, uh, the end of the year, with it being such a, a, a seasonal industry. Mm. Let's certainly hope so uh, for sure, John. It's a shame that we don't have more time on today's programme. Otherwise, we could talk about these issues long into the afternoon, I'm sure. But nevertheless, it's been a real pleasure having you on the uh, the programme with us and a most insightful experience for myself. And do take care in the meantime, John, and stay safe with all still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet. Thank you, Scott. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. That was John Ruddock speaking, the General Manager of ADIPS, the Amusement Device Inspection Procedures Scheme. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket skipper Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, Sir Andrew is currently the Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board, but during his days as England captain, he joined an illustrious club of just three England skippers to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia. He also racked up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history during that tenure. Quite impressive. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew. That is coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> Um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Riscothi who gave me that nickname. Oh. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place. 
and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... You know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then, you know, Vaughan got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, not, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness, they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets you know, a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, 
Um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after. Because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point you know, because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, you privilege, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th- suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, w- that was a big part of it. 
for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they. Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Holyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the 
all right mm. on the night and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move as times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky... Uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what did the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it, a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired. Another generation of, uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You'd never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f focuses number one to 
fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers... It's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it's, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing re wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though, I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, 
that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but... In two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and we'll be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? Uh, sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.